Welcome to More Than a Few Words, a marketing conversation for business owners. MTFW is a production of Roundpeg where we believe that marketing strategy should be delivered in plain English. This is Lorraine Ball and Allison Carter. And this week we're going to talk about websites. But specifically, we're going to talk in depth about websites. This is this is not your website 101. In fact, this is website 201. Absolutely. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at some of the things that really anyone can do to dramatically improve their website. We're going to talk about plugins because we build in WordPress, but we're also going to talk about strategy. So if you've got an HTML or a Joomla or a Freedom website, these tools will work there as well. Yeah, but if you have one of those lame kinds of websites, you should probably call someone to get it converted over to WordPress. You'll be glad you did. <laughs> okay, we probably are a little biased, but I'm going to put in one plug here for WordPress. While people used to think of it as a niche software product, and they used to think of it as kind of amateur web design, I read recently that more than 50% of the new websites that were launched in 2013 were launched on a WordPress platform. Yeah, and the thing is, these aren't just small businesses either. Many, many large corporations actually use these as the base for their online operations. So no matter what size your business is, WordPress is in most cases, a workable solution. It is definitely a conversation you should be having, but the conversation we're really going to have today is what do you do once you have that WordPress website and it's up and running? What are some of the things that you can add? Right, so once you've got your basic copy and you've got a contact us form and you've got the basics of a website, it's time to really start thinking about how you can really make that a dynamic selling tool, or at least prospecting tool. And one really important way of doing that is by displaying what we call social proof, which are more commonly known as testimonials and case studies, people saying you're awesome. And let's face it, long before the advent of the internet, any company knew that if they had a word of mouth business, that if their customers were saying good things about them, that would influence future customers. Absolutely. So if you have a basic kind of starter website, what we'll call, your temptation is probably to put all of your testimonials on one page, have them up in the head, in the, in the navigation bar as what our customers are saying or people love us or something like that. I don't think that's the right way to go. I think part of the problem with that is it's too easy to ignore them. Yeah. The fact of the matter is, if I go to a website, I am expecting that everything the website says about the company is going to be glowing because they get to choose what goes on it. So when I, if I have to go to a testimonials page, why would I do that? I know what it's going to be. The better way to display and share your testimonials is to kind of integrate it into other parts of the website. So when I'm looking at a page of your services, maybe I see a testimonial. If I'm looking at your homepage, and there's some really good ways to do that. Right, one popular way is to put the testimonials in either the sidebar on your website or in the footer even. Uh, both are great options. And the reason that that's so much better than having it segregated on its own page is because it kind of becomes background noise to people. Their eye glances over it, they read it, without having to make a specific effort to do so. And that kind of makes a subconscious, uh, has a subconscious effect on the reader. They're not looking out and saying, well, of course they're going to say this. It's just little bits of, okay, other people think they're good. They're saying X, Y, and Z about them. Maybe I can trust them. It's that nice subliminal messaging that's there, as you said, it's kind of background noise. And there are some really nice plugins. You can just pick 
one great testimonial and put it in the sidebar. You can put one great testimonial on any page of your website that is relevant for what it is you're promoting on that page. Or one of our favorite tools are some of these random text plugins that actually rotate between two or three different testimonials. And I would be careful about the speed. You don't want to go too fast or too slow, but that give you a way of updating the information. But there's some good guidelines if you're going to put text in a sidebar or in a footer. The biggest thing is if, you, if you're going to put text in a sidebar or footer, it's got to be short. You're looking at one or two sentences max. This is not the time to tell someone's life story in a testimonial. If that's what you're looking for, what you're really looking at probably is a case study. And with case studies, you really want to focus on telling the story, on talking about what was the problem and how did you solve it, and ideally what the results were. Yeah, numbers are king when it comes to case studies. I got a great one from a customer today where they had been able to talk to their customer and say, we reduced our cost 25% working with you. We increased our customer satisfaction 68%. The more of those that you can have, the better your testimonial is going to be because it's not just pie-in-the-sky fluff. It's concrete. We saved money. We made our customers happy. We can help you too. So when you're going to do that, you can think about it in several different ways. You can certainly use your blog and create a category for case studies. If it's a more detailed case study and it might be something that you want to maybe include when you go to call on a customer, you might think about laying that case study out in a Word doc or a PDF and just putting a summary in your blog. Absolutely. There's lots of different ways of doing it, but especially, we, we typically see case studies in B2B industries. They can be used in B2C depending on the complexity of it, but most of the time that's going to be more of a B2B tool and it can be really critical. And so the other thing that I think as you're thinking about your case studies and your testimonials, they have a long life. You don't necessarily have to change them out every couple of weeks or every couple of months because you do have new people coming to the site who haven't seen them before. But you do want to check back from time to time and reread those case studies to make sure that A, they still talk about the things that you're focusing your business on, B, that there's nothing that has changed. Maybe the case study talks about a service you don't provide anymore or about an industry regulation has, that has subsequently been updated. So you need to just be kind of reviewing those case studies periodically to making sure they're still relevant. One way to make that easier is when you're initially writing the case study, don't include time-relevant details. I saw this just the other day with something that a client sent me. It had a line that said, this worked so well, the client is planning on implementing more of it in 2012. So while that was relevant at the time, typically try to go for more time-neutral phrases like in the coming year or in the next 12 months because then they don't know if you're talking about in the next 12 months of 2012 or 2014. Great advice. Great advice. Okay, so we're going to switch from the um, case studies and I want to focus a little bit on one of the other things that I think can really be beneficial to a lot of blogs out there and that is connecting with guest bloggers. Absolutely. There are a number of different good strategies and one bad one and I want to talk about the bad one and get it off the table right away. 
If you've got a blog that's building any kind of momentum, suddenly you're going to start getting all sorts of emails from people who want to put a blog post on your website with a few harmless links to some other website. Don't do this. It's not good content. It's not in your best interest. It's good for them. You're better off not having those 400 words on your website. Right. What you want to look for instead is people who you already know, you trust. Reach out to bloggers who you admire and ask them if they'd like to do a blog exchange. And if someone does come to you cold and you look at their stuff and you look at their website and they do seem to be a legitimate blogger and not some sort of spam farmer, uh, absolutely consider building those relationships. But specifically today we're actually going to talk about how you go about giving that person access to your website. Cause that, that seems like kind of a scary thing to me. Absolutely. And, and you really you have several choices. One of the things, and we did this for a long time on Roundpeg, was we actually had a guest category. We didn't have that many guest writers because we have a pretty solid core of content developers here in-house. But every now and then we had someone and we would put them in the guest category and then we'd put a nice bio with a link to their website. And two or three years ago that was fine. But today there are real advantages to giving each one of those users their own round peg account. And that the big thing is there, you can easily connect it to their Google authorship page and profile. And that is something, it's still kind of nebulous how Google is using that information, but we know that it is becoming more important. So there's lots of other information out here. We don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole. Just rest assured there are legitimate reasons. It also looks a little bit nicer, makes it easier to see who is writing something than having to scroll down and see the bio at the bottom. Just it's tidier all the way around, but there are kind of some dangers that can come with that if you don't do it right. Well, and that's where deciding what level of user account you want to create. And again, this is specific to WordPress. Absolutely. I'm sure that there are similar <laughs> systems, uh, similar opportunities on different systems. But basically, in WordPress, you have the administrator account. And only one or two people should ever have access to the administrator account because these are the people that can make real changes to your website, Including to deleting the whole darn thing. And yeah, so that is, that is for someone who really knows what they're doing. The next level are the editors. And these are people that can change any of the text that appears anywhere on the site, they just can't change any of the structure. Again, I still think that an editor role should be reserved for people that actually are part of your organization. Next, you have authors and contributors. And there's two different levels. Um, authors can log in, put up content, and actually publish it. Contributors are people who can log in, post their content, but it cannot be shared until an editor reviews it. Yeah, and in general, if you're just dealing with a guest blogger, I am slightly paranoid. Your blog is your baby, or it should be. You don't want anything going up that you don't know about. So for me, if you've got someone who's just going to be a one or two time guest blogger, 
give them an author access, oh, I'm sorry, a contributor access to your page. If it's someone who's going to be in more of an ongoing role and you come to trust them and know that they're not going to do anything stupid, then you might consider an author role. But I like to review everything before it goes out anyway, so it's just easier for me to keep to the contributor roles. And I, uh, side note here, Allison even reviews my blogs. <laughs> or, or maybe especially my blogs. But um, that allows us to not just ensure the consistency mm -hmm. and the quality, it also allows us to control the schedule. Absolutely. Because at Roundpeg, on our blog, we have certain types of content that we want to be sharing on certain days. We don't want the same type of blog post two days in a row. Let me throw in one great tool here that can really help with that. It's another WordPress plugin, and it's called WordPress Editorial Calendar. I love that. It is free, and it is really essential to anyone doing blogging with any kind of frequency. We install it and use it on all of our clients. You can see your blog posts in a calendar view, drag and drop them, move stuff around. It is a lifesaver. I recommend it for everyone. It, it has made uh, our life really easy because we can look ahead two and three weeks and see where do we have the holes or where have we been very repetitive and it's, you know, maybe we've covered the same topic too many times. I, I totally love it. Mm -hmm. The uh, one last thing on um, setting up guest bloggers and that is as you're doing it, also make sure that you add that link to the Google Authorship account. Mm -hmm. There are instructions in Google on how to add that little bit of an information. It is a nice thing to do for the guest blogger. It gives them additional credibility. It also gives additional authority to your blog when that blogger is writing elsewhere and being recognized as an expert and this is part of their credentials. Great ideas. So, looking at websites, looking at some of the things that you can do, there are a couple of tools. We've talked about some free ones. I also want to talk just briefly about some things that we really think are worth paying for. There are some more complex functions of your website that is just going to make your life way easier if you let someone else deal with the coding headaches. And the biggest one of those is contact submission forms of any kind. You can code them yourself. Some people do. That's perfectly legitimate. But for me, I would rather have someone else handle that. And there are some, there are some nice free tools if you have basic needs. I want your email and your phone number and uh, just a quick message from you. You can use the built-in contact form in WordPress. You can use a free form from WooFu. But if you're looking for more, if you want people to fill out on a landing page, um, fill out information and then immediately give them a response, immediately redirect them to the PDF that they've asked to download. If you want people to submit their resumes and work samples or engineering diagrams and specifications or accept payments, mm -hmm. All of those things require a significantly higher level of coding, and for that, we like Formstack. Formstack is a great company. They're based uh, out of our hometown of Indianapolis. Um, they are a fantastic company, and we uh, have been doing business with them for years. We actually have hundreds of Formstack forms built into websites, and what makes this tool worth paying for for us beyond the ability to, to 
build a form on the fly in five minutes or less without a line of code, which is always good for me, the forms are also part of a data collection tool. Mm -hmm. And so I can go back into Formstack a month, three months, six months, a year, and look at all the people that filled out that form. I can leave the data in Formstack or I can download it into a spreadsheet. And this is fabulous. Um, I'm actually using it today. I'm calling all the people that downloaded certain forms to make them aware of new classes and new forms that are available. It is great for going back a month or two months later when we have another job opening here at Roundpeg and looking at the resumes that maybe we didn't consider last time around. And the investment is really quite small. You can get a starter package, which is what most businesses will need starting at $19.95. So that's, you know, 240 bucks for a year. It's a really small investment. If you get one client from it, in most cases, it'll cover the cost for the whole year. People expect to be able to contact you from your website. Don't make them copy and paste your email address. That's rinky-dink. Get better. Well, not only that, but if you put your email address, spam you're, you're going to really increase the amount of spam that you're going to get. And so I, I want to talk about one more tool that I think is really worth paying for, especially as more and more companies are looking at inbound marketing and looking at using AdWords to drive traffic. And you don't want to drive all that traffic to your homepage. If somebody is interested, you want to get them right to where they need to be and keep them focused on one action when they get there. And that's where landing pages become really important. Right, and typically landing pages will drive traffic from, say, a Google uh, pay-per-click ad or from a LinkedIn ad or from a specific social media platform or an email, something like that, where you have a group of people who are being promised or enticed with the promise of something. And they can go to that page and get it quickly and easily. And that might be um, a free ebook. That might be register for a class. That might be fill out a survey. Mm -hmm. Whatever it is, you want to bring them to that page and you don't want to confuse them. At that moment, they came looking for something. Give them what they came for and earn the right to talk to them about other things. So how do you, so can I just set up a regular page on my website to do this? How do I make these landing pages? Well, you can, um, but one of the challenges that you run into then is they become part of your primary navigation, perhaps, oh, or... You can, you can leave them out. Or you can, you can in some, most. You, most of the time you can leave them out, but they become part of the primary site architecture, which you don't necessarily want, um, but also you have to then worry about... Um, adding in contact forms and also if they're just part of your regular website there may be the clutter you may have a standard banner with lots of navigation points you may have a sidebar or footers and you really don't want that on your landing page no. people come for one thing you want to give them one choice they either take it or they don't and they move on and so for that we actually um, use a landing page creation tool called Premise. It was created by the folks at Copyblogger. They're, they're really good. They also created Studio Press, which is a fabulous collection of WordPress themes. Um, it's not cheap. It's $165 to get Premise. But with that, we can create landing pages on the fly. We can replicate them 
at the push of a button and test two different offers, two different headers to see what works better. The other thing is you might want to, if you've got a WordPress theme, you might want to talk to your developer. We have a premise license. That allows us to install premise in all of our clients' websites for significantly less, and they get all the benefits of the tool. So we could, we could talk about a lot more things, but I think we've given you a pretty good action list. Just one tip to remember going forward is once your website is designed, it is not done. That is really only the beginning of your work. Tools evolve all the time. Aesthetics evolve all the time. How people use the internet evolves all the time. Using these plugins really allows you to revamp and fine-tune your site without having to blow it up and start from scratch again. So in a way, using many of these tools, even the paid tools, can save you a lot of money. Because it can, it can help you put off, for maybe another year, updating it. Now, trust me, I, I do want you to update this eventually, but it does extend the life of every, every site. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, if you want to learn more specifically about this topic, you can download a copy of the white paper that is on this same topic. You'll find a link in the blog post associated with this podcast. And the iTunes description as well. And in the iTunes description as well. This has been another episode of More Than A Few Words. Thanks for listening.